Welcome back to FinCast. This is Juan Zarati. Hope you're doing well. This is the Financial Integrity Network's podcast. We're incredibly excited. I'm excited to be here with Eric Lorber. Eric is a senior associate at Fin, former OFAC official, uh, also a senior fellow at the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. What we're going to talk about today is a new report that Eric was the lead author on and that was published in February 2017. The report's called Securing American Interests, A New Era of Economic Power. Uh, really a, an important and powerful report that's come out of the center uh, and, frankly, reflects a lot of very good thinking that, that Eric uh, and a lot of colleagues uh, in, at CSIF and also at Finn have, have put together. So we're excited to have this conversation. It's really a way of getting into the topic of what a national economic security strategy uh, and thinking should look like. Uh, and we're really pleased that Eric uh, has the time to, to be able to talk to us about what's in the report. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Juan. It's great to be here. Uh, and I would be remiss to, uh, to say up front thank you um, to everyone at CSIF who contributed greatly to this report. I was merely the, the steward who put it together. Uh, everybody else, uh, frankly, added the expertise. Uh, and that's the first thank you. And the second thank you is to you and uh, Chip Ponce and our new colleague, Danny Glazer, uh, without whom uh, the basis for this report would never really exist. Uh, and so the, you know, a, <laughs> way, a, great, way kind, yeah, yeah. a great element of the TF mission uh, has been, uh, was stood up by, by the three of you guys. And so um, uh, just thank you for that. Thank you, Eric. Um, I think as we've talked about um, the issue of national economic security, um, a common theme, and it's a theme that's um, animated the, the creation of that center, CSIF, um, as well as some of our work at Finn, is the notion that there, there isn't enough thinking uh, strategically, doctrinally, even tactically, around all elements of national economic security and how those pieces fit together. Um, there's certainly a lot of discussion and talk about sanctions. There's certainly plenty of talk around uh, worrying about Chinese strategic investment in the U.S., um, there's certainly lots of discussion about cyber uh, warfare, security vulnerabilities, uh, but how all this fits together and how the United States should be thinking about its national economic security in the 21st century uh, with other actors in the system uh, using elements of globalization to probe vulnerabilities, uh, to create leverage, um, and, and to perhaps even weaken the ability of the United States to use its very own tools and pressure in the space. How should we be thinking about that? And, and what are the structures and, frankly, recommendations uh, that the U.S. government should be considering, uh, the international community, both the public and the private sector should think about, um, and what further research and um, doctrinal work should be done, perhaps by the academic community? And so we hope this podcast spurs some, some good thinking. We hope it draws you to actually read the report. Um, and certainly we think this is an area uh, in an issue space uh, that requires more thinking and more participation. So hopefully the, those of you listening will not only be excited by this, but will be inspired to do some work in this space. So Eric, why don't, why don't we take that um, and talk a little bit about kind of the way you thought about this report, uh, its genesis, uh, and then maybe even talk about its structure so people have a sense as to how uh, you and the center have organized this. Yeah, absolutely, Juan. And so I think 
the genesis of the report stems uh, very much from what you've just sort of laid out in the sense that over the past 15 years, certainly um, in policymaking circles and in the press, there's been this uh, focus on the power of economic sanctions and the power of these punitive tools. But there are so many other elements to U.S. economic statecraft which are complementary to that, which oftentimes don't get the same focus or the same attention. And so here, for example, I'm thinking of issues related to um, the international financial system and the integrity of the financial system and steps that have been taken over those past 15 years, whether it's through the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, whether it's domestic level changes, um, such as legislation uh, requiring beneficial ownership information that really underpin a lot of U.S. economic power. And that's just on the coercive side. On the more positive side, you have elements of economic power, such as strategic investment or information sharing technologies that are meant to reduce uh, reduce uh, risks posed by, for example, de-risking, which I know is a topic that we've talked about uh, on previous podcasts. And so the report is meant to really sort of focus and give a broad sense of what are the risks that the United States faces in the next five to 10 years uh, in terms of its national economic security, not just from a coercive perspective, but also from um, its positive economic power and our ability to employ that effectively. And how should we be thinking about and, uh, and changing the structures of the U.S. government and public private cooperation to address those. And as a result, the report is organized, I like to think it's organized very clearly, but it's organized very <laughs> clearly along those lines. And so we have uh, a number of chapters, uh, six in total, um, uh, f- five substantive chapters. The, the first substantive chapter really focuses on sharpening our tools of economic coercion. And this really thinks through sort of what the next steps uh, for sanctions are. How do we ensure that our economic power uh, to, to, to force Iran to the negotiating table for the JCPOA, to um, ensure that North Korea stops uh, its continued development of its nuclear program, how do we make sure those tools remain as sharp as they've been in the past 10 years? Uh, the second chapter, substantive chapter, really looks at defensive measures that the United States has to take in order to make sure that, that its tools of economic coercion, but also its economy more broadly, um, remain, uh, remain strong. And here, we're really concerned about potential adversaries' uses of coercive tools, so China's use of sanctions, for example, Russia's use of sanctions, but then also other elements of economic power that are potentially being used against us, which may not fall under that sort of broad category that we've always thought about coercive tools. So strategic investments by the Chinese, for example, um, in core U.S. industries or in our allies' core industries, or cyber-enabled economic warfare. So, for example, the North Koreans launching attacks against the international financial system and literally stealing uh, tens of millions of dollars from, from banks. Um, and so thinking through a lot of what the defensive uh, threats are, the threats, to, the threats to our national economic security are, and how to defend against them really makes up the meat of that second section. The third section really focuses on positive economic power. Um, and this is uh, not usually thought of in the context of, of, of coercive power, of sanctions, and, and things along these lines. And yet we think that actually from a complementary perspective, it's very important. Uh, so for example, using strategic investment, um, uh, investment that's designed, for example, to uh, build up civil um, infrastructure, build up international fin- the international financial system, particularly in high-risk jurisdictions, as a way to clear out the underbrush, to reduce corruption, to reduce illicit financing, and establish uh, safer um, and more stable uh, societies. We'll actually hopefully do things like reduce terrorism, reduce terrorism financing, et cetera. 
Almost tools of financial inclusion. That's in that exactly regard. right. Yeah. Exactly how I think about it. And then the uh, the fourth section uh, focuses on the broader systemic issues that we touched on a little bit earlier. So, for example, ensuring that there's transparency and accountability in the international financial system, which really underpins a lot of the efforts over the past 15 years to root out sanctions, evasion, illicit finance, et cetera. Uh, and then lastly, we have a chapter that really sort of narrows down on what the U.S. should be doing from a structural uh, a structural perspective to change the bureaucracies to the extent possible and really uh, impact, um, uh, really uh, impact maybe the wrong word, uh, really bring together these different pillars of power in a way that makes sense from a governmental perspective so we can bring them all to bear to address challenges. That's a great way of describing it, and I, I do think it's a neat articulation of the the core kind of thematics and elements that we're talking about when we're talking about national economic security. And as you've already alluded to, Eric, you know these aren't new issues necessarily. Um, the the issues of economic statecraft, warfare, uh, and the way they've evolved over time is not new uh, in a globalized context the way it has emerged or how it manifests certainly is. But I think what's really important here is the fact that you've you've combined, we've combined this, this conceptual notion that all of this has to be taken together if you are to, to be effective in excluding rogue actors and rogue system. And you, you're also to build up the systemic dimensions of, of financial inclusion that are so important from a policy perspective as well. So that's a really neat uh, categorization that you've described. Um, one thing I want to do, Eric, before we dive more deeply into each of these sections is um, just make the point that, um, you know, this is not a, an argument or report uh, for, um, you know, classic uh, nationalist isolationism, right? Um, the, the, the title, you know, Securing American Interests, A New Era of Economic Power may suggest that, you know, we're trying to kind of lock down the economy in some way or, or punish actors in draconian ways. This is almost quite the opposite. It's, it's a recognition that uh, we have to take advantage of the global system. We've got to reinforce the norms and principles undergirding them. We've got to rely on international institutions and partners in, in very important ways. Um, and that, frankly, the U.S. has a predominant role and advantage in that environment. Um, and that's the starting point uh, uh, with respect to this, uh, and we're not retreating from those principles. I think it's important for listeners to hear that, especially given sort of the, the current uh, political and, and, and diplomatic discourse. Uh, this is really an argument for the use of American leverage in a globalized environment and economy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, frankly, if, if you know, when we were going through the recommendations and thinking through sort of what would be the most important uh, things we could suggest to Congress, to the new administration, it really focused on that international component of it. I mean, I'm just thinking here uh, about Section 3, which is the section on defensive economic power. One of the key recommendations we talk about is making sure that our allies uh, in the United States are both aligned in terms of their defensive strategic investment posture. So if we see a strategic investment in New Zealand, for example, in Australia, for example, that we're able to work with the 
Aussies or work with the Kiwis, yeah. whomever. There you go. There you go, exactly. The All Blacks. To, the All Blacks. Um, <laughs> to make sure that they're also uh, aware of it, that they have the information necessary to make decisions to block potentially threatening investment. And so there's a lot of stuff that, that goes on in these recommendations, which is specifically focused on partnering with our allies, with our partners, and then also with, as you say, sort of building up and maintaining the, the global norms of the international financial system, because at, at the end of the day, those norms have really helped the United States and really pushed our mission forward. Yeah, and that, that's that's worth teasing out just for a second, because I do think there are some core themes that uh, that weave throughout the report um, you, you wrote so well. And part of it is those norms and principles are fundamental pillars of the power that we're talking about here, that the ability to, to shape those norms and to define the rules is a part of the power structure that we're talking about. Uh, the, the power and attractiveness of the American economy, the role of the dollar, obviously key to this. Um, the need to think even more creatively about alliances becomes important, to your point about uh, defensive uh, posturing against strategic investments that may be threatening. Um, and so there, there are some really important themes that weave throughout this that are about uh, reinforcing the U.S. position, but also thinking creatively about how we use the U.S. position in this environment. Um, so let's, let's dig a little bit more deeply into each of these dimensions. The first has to do with uh, you know, sharpening U.S. tools. And, and in some ways, the listeners may be most familiar with the strategies of financial exclusion, the use of sanctions, um, and you know, some of us just say, well, you know, we've, haven't we done enough there? Or, or haven't we perfected the art form? Or even if we haven't perfected it, what more needs to be done? Um, talk to talk to me and talk to listeners about a couple of the ideas that are in there that you think are, are important to keep in mind about sharpening our offensive uh, use of, of financial pressure and economic tools. Yeah, absolutely. And so just so the reader knows, hopefully you already know by now because you've read the report you know, in great detail, but uh, <laughs> there, there are a number of recommendations um, and sort of key lessons that we, that we glean from the past 15, 20 years of, of sanctions uh, episodes and financial pressure episodes. But I think that maybe the, the three most important lessons of these that I like to talk about um, are the first one is that economic statecraft and this economic pressure has to be used in conjunction with other tools. And, or as part of a larger strategy. And so, for example, it has to be used with either the use of military force or the potential threat of military force, with deft diplomacy, with, for example, cyber operations, um, and a number of other possible uh, mechanisms that the United States has to, while at the same time putting pressure on an adversary, also potentially offer that adversary uh, some type of, of carrot if they change their behavior. Yeah. Um, and so here I'm thinking specifically of, of the nuclear negotiations with Iran, which is obviously a very contentious discussion. But I think one thing that did come out of that is that very powerful sanctions coupled with cyber op aggressive cyber operations and coupled with diplomacy certainly led Iran to the negotiating table. Um, think about think what you want about you know the the JCPOA and the wisdom of that agreement. I do think that the lesson we can take from that is that there certainly is the need to pair economic tools with other elements of statecraft. But interestingly enough, it doesn't necessarily need to be done in ways that we have traditionally thought of it. So, 
many people think of sanctions as, um, as a substitute for the use of military force. I actually see it uh, differently. It can either be a complement to the use of military force, either as I just described it with the JCPOA, but also in other sort of more innovative ways. One way I think of uh, that was suggested to us by members of the CSIF board was that uh, military force can actually be a complement to economic uh, statecraft and economic sanctions. For example, um, in the fight against ISIS, I know that uh, ISIS, which basically had you know, territory in northern Iraq and Syria, um, had its own internal economy, uh, its own financial system set up uh, using banks that had uh, a, large number, a large amount of currency within them. And the US military actually bombed many of those banks in order to destroy the actual physical hard currency to prevent the operation um, of ISIS's internal economy. And so yeah, thinking- The vid videos of the cash centers being sort of blown up and the, and the cash flying in the air, yeah. So exactly. the, the combination of uh, the kinetic with the, the classic treasury targeting. Exactly, so it's a little bit of a flip of what we're mostly used to where uh, sanctions are thought of in support of other operations. In this circumstance, you see situations where kinetic force can be used um, as a complement to sanctions. And so thinking through how these tools fit into a broader strategy, I think is one of the more important points that we've learned over the past um, over the past couple of years. And, and just just to highlight that, I think a simple way to think of it is, um, there, there are some very creative ways of, of doing this, but for these kinds of tools to be effective, they actually do have to be nested in a broader strategy and, and can be a complement to other elements of power. But to rely on sanctions or financial pressure or isolation alone um, is, a, is a fool's errand if you're expecting that to have the broad strategic impact of, uh, uh, that, that you would imagine in some of these hard national security issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think the second important lesson that we've learned is that Sanctions can often, these tools can often be most effective when they target, um, maybe not directly target an entity, but target the sinews upon which that entity's economy relies. And so, for example, again, the Iran case here is very instructive. Mm. Yes, the United States did target the Iranian economy directly through oil sanctions and targeting um, uh, individuals in the Iranian government who were engaged in illicit conduct. But we also made it very clear that we were going after uh, Iran's links to the international bank the banking system. And so focusing on those kind of sinew relationships that really are required in order for a modern economy to operate is a really smart way to, to increase pressure significantly. And mm -hmm. here are other sectors I'm thinking about which are sort of under the same category of things like insurance. So you need insurance, uh, shipping insurance, for example, um, in order to ensure the, you know, the, the, a number of or large number of um, cargo transfers that, you know, that any country that is engaged in a large amount of international mm -hmm, trade mm -hmm. relies on. If you can target that, you can have outsized impact on that target economy without actually having to impose, you know, a huge, a wide-ranging embargo, for example. Right, Eric. Another, um, another point that you and I've talked about and, and it's in the report is this idea of targeted unwinding or, or more tailored unwinding, this idea that you either have pressure on or off, that, uh, that uh, once you've made a diplomatic deal, for example, the sanctions need to come off. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things and ask you to talk about it is uh, not having a binary approach to the unwinding of sanctions and, in fact, thinking about the period of unwinding as a strategic opportunity to continue to influence 
based on how you unwind. Yeah. So I, I think that's absolutely right. That's one of the most important lessons I think we've learned about unwinding is that we need to think through more clearly what opportunities are provided to us during that unwinding process. The example I really like to use here is in, is in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action context, uh, in which that's the Iran nuclear deal. Iran nuclear deal, right? Thanks, Juan. Yeah. Um, in <laughs> which the United States um, is obligated, uh, assuming certain conditions, to license aircraft sales to Iran, right? And so, in as we all know, it has been. You know, a huge issue in the past couple of months, maybe six months or so, both Boeing and Airbus have signed contracts with Iran Air to provide um, upwards of, uh, I think, almost 200 aircraft, commercial aircraft, to Iran Air. And the concern, which is a very valid concern, is that Iran Air is going to use these aircraft um, to ferry goods and services to, for example, Hezbollah or Syrian President Bashar Or to ferry Assad. troops or other things. Troops, yeah. right, exactly, too. Right. Weapons. Um, yeah. or, or cash. Um, and so uh, what could be done in this situation is instead of simply allowing Boeing and Airbus to sell these aircraft to Iran, you could structure the contracts. So the U.S. government could require the contracts be structured in such a way that, in, that continues to maintain the pressure on Iran air to not engage in malign activities. For example, uh, the contracts could be structured that require Iran Air to put all the money for the purchase of the aircraft up front into escrow accounts. And then, as a regular schedule, you know, every month or so, the planes are delivered. But if any, uh, if any illicit shipments are detected by Iran Air, um, by U.S. intelligence, for example, then the Boeing and Airbus must cease delivery of those aircraft, and all that money that was placed up front in the escrow account would be forfeit. It's forfeited. Yeah. yeah, and in that way, you can yeah. incentivize Iran Air not to engage in the types of malign activities that we're concerned about. Right. And another example that uh, you and I have talked about before, and it comes in the Cuba context, is um, how how the licensing uh, can be structured in terms of uh, the allowance of certain types of U.S. investment or or activity where that licensing can actually be quite demanding in terms of the types of not just activity, but also the actors with which those investments or commercial operations can be engaged with. Of course, a challenge in the unwinding uh, with some of these regimes, the Cuban regime uh, is, is a good and principal example, is that these are autocratic states where the government often still the same government that hasn't really changed the underlying behavior that we're worried about in the case of Cuba human rights abuses, let's say, um, that, that, that we are simply opening up the economy and investment to the, that government, that the government itself will benefit from and profit from and uh, further ensconce itself as a result of the unwinding. And instead, thinking more creatively about the, the licensing in a way that does service to the idea that you're trying to help the Cuban people, which is what we've said from a policy perspective, but the licensing hasn't necessarily matched that tailoring to say, well, it has to require a degree of private sector involvement on the Cuban side, which might altogether force the Cuban government to make a hard decision about allowing more private sector involvement with foreign investment. Uh, and so those kinds of ideas, I think, are things we've talked about that I think would be creative and um, haven't been part of the, the dialogue as much uh, as we would like. And I agree. And I think that actually one other sort of macro idea, which hasn't gotten a lot of interest, certainly towards the tail end of the Obama administration, 
would be the actual credible threat of reimposing or re-ramping up sanctions when there was non-compliance, or we felt, for example, that the sanctions unwinding wasn't achieving what we wanted to, to achieve. In the case of Cuba, for example, there wasn't a, a, a significant lessening of human, uh, human rights abuses by the Cuban government, by the Castro government. Uh, and so recognizing that and saying, okay, well, we've tried to unwind sanctions on your government. It really hasn't done what we wanted it to do. So we're actually gonna reinstitute portions of the pressure campaign to make it clear to you that that is an important U.S. policy objective. And if you want this economic relief, then you have to abide by it. And so I think that the overhanging stick, the overhanging threat, even in the context of a sanctions unwinding, creates a good incentive for, in this case, the Castro government to actually do what we're asking them to do. That's great. That's great. Um, Just one other idea that I know um, is in the report uh, and it relates to what you're talking about earlier in terms of uh, financial power and offensive tools being a part of a broader strategy. Uh, another idea is the the sense that these are tools that shouldn't always be used in a reactive context. And I think that's what we've seen often in the in the use of especially sanctions. You know, they're they're in response to particular provocation or in response to a crisis, whereas. Some of these tools, especially the conduct-based focus of certain sanctions and and sanctions regimes, can be a constant, proactive shaping of an environment um, in a way that, um, you know, strategists, certainly from a military standpoint, often think about shaping the battlefield uh, even before you have to engage. If you're trying to change behavior and change norms, and especially those that relate to underlying conduct like uh, terrorist financing or proliferation financing or human rights abuses or uh, kleptocracy. Um, You know, these are tools that should be constantly used to target those offenders and that offensive behavior in a way that both conditions the uh, not just the geopolitical environment, but also the marketplace uh, to those activities. And I think you're I think at the very end of the past administration, you were beginning to see that thinking come into play. So I know in the case of South Sudan, the U.S. government threatened to impose sanctions on certain um, uh, leadership uh, individuals in South Sudan if they failed to strike a peace accord for the civil war there. And so I think that idea of like, okay, well, how can we use this threat to actually um, push forward something that we really want, yeah. is begin- it, it began to kind of take form in a very rump, yeah. rump manner. Yeah, and you saw it in the Libyan context too, the Europeans talking about that and the way they would threaten sanctions. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Well, let, let's move, there's lots more in that chapter and it's it's worth a, a longer discussion, but uh, hopefully the, the listeners will, will get a chance to read it or peruse it. Um, um, the next chapter is on the defensive side. Um, so let's talk about a couple of the ideas there. Um, one has to do with cyber economic, uh, cyber enabled economic warfare. And the idea here is that um, a lot of actors, both state and non-state in the cyber domain, are not only hunting out vulnerabilities to, to profit or to disrupt, um, but also are thinking about these cyber tools in a way that combines with economic influence. Can you talk talk a little bit about that? That's certainly an area of, of more study that's coming out of CSEF uh, in the coming weeks. But talk to us about what the report says about uh, cyber-enabled economic warfare. Yeah, absolutely. And so the report uh, runs through kind of a gamut of potential um, uh, 
threats may be a little bit, maybe not the right way to phrase it, but certainly challenges the United States is facing in this area. And they stem from everyone from uh, major power competitors like China and Russia to North Korea, for example, to uh, non-state actors, so um, ISIS-related activity. And basically the idea that we're concerned about is, as you sort of uh, as, as you phrased it, is that in the case of China, for example, that China is using much of its cyber capability to actively engage in um, what I think General Keith Alexander has called the uh, the largest uh, transfer of wealth in history, right? So China is stealing massive IP, but it's not as if this is just commercial espionage. It's government-sponsored. So you have government-sponsored hacking units in China, for example, stealing commercial IP from the United States uh, and using it to bolster their own state-owned enterprises, but also also, in, in, in additionally, in a very concerning way, using it to bolster their own defense technology development. And so I think the real concern here, particularly in the case of China, is that not only are you seeing economic espionage, but you're seeing esp economic espionage uh, in such a way that's being used to bolster Chinese defense uh, critical technology. Um, on the Russia front, um, it's, a little, it's a little bit of a different approach, but certainly um, as the, as the Joint Intelligence CIA um, FBI reports uh, suggested at the end of December, the Russians obviously have, uh, have been very aggressive on this in, in their cyber activities, going after um, uh, attempting to influence U.S. domestic politics, um, uh, in particular the 2016 um, electoral campaign. And so a lot of what this report does is it identifies what these sort of important threats are and then says, okay, well, how do we actually change that behavior? And one idea we do have in there um, uh, relates to, for example, um, executive order, I think it's 13694, which is the, uh, the executive order which permits the president to use sanctioning authority um, for malicious cyber-enabled activity. The cyber EO. Is cyber EO, called. exactly. Exactly. And we saw the first, the, the EO was actually put out, I think it was, um, it was April 20, uh, 2015. Um, but we, the first designation, so the first sanctions targets we saw of the EO didn't actually come um, until the end of 2016 when President Obama designated uh, Russian intelligence uh, services and, and certain Russian individuals. Um, and so there's this idea here that we're facing quite a number of cyber-enabled threats, both economic and maybe a little bit more politically oriented, and that we have to develop um, very clear responses to them. And these responses, as, as I should note, are not simply government-oriented responses, because oftentimes the victims of these attacks are not it's not the United States directly, it's not the U.S. government, it's actually private entities in the United States, financial institutions in particular, which I know you've spoken uh, and worked a lot on, Juan. Yeah, no, thanks, Eric. And, and in fact, um, done some writing, we've often talked about this idea um, not only of the greater need for public-private coordination in the cyber context, which is sort of uh, an obvious uh, sort of given, um, but thinking about perhaps different models. Uh, I've called it a cyber-privateering model. That is where the, the private sector is given more authority, more capabilities to actually defend itself. Uh, in concert with the government, not in a Wild West format where you know you have hacking back and these kinds of things, but where you have active defense measures in place, uh, where you enable uh, private sector actors to, to hold malicious cyber actors to account, including in the courts, class action suits, uh, and the ability uh, to parallel or marry with some of these cyber sanctions that, that you've just mentioned, Eric. So I think there's a whole suite of things uh, that, that I've laid out in, in other contexts uh, that you can think about in a cyber privateering model. But it does point to what this chapter is about, which is uh, what is what is the defensive 
economic posture if there are actors, uh, state and non-state, in the physical and in the virtual world uh, that are seeking out vulnerabilities and trying to use the very economic and financial systems and powers against U.S. interests. And, uh, you know, that's really the point of, of this chapter. Erica, you and I have also talked about the strategic investment side. You mentioned it briefly earlier. Um, you know, one of the ideas here is should we think more broadly about how the U.S. defends against uh, strategic investment in the national security space not just for purposes of, of U.S. interests, but also for its allies. And, and you, you referred to that earlier, which I think was, was well said. Um, anything else you want to say about that, Eric, or, or the defensive posture that we need to take? Yeah, I mean, I think that the strategic investment side of things is, uh, is, is particularly, frankly, it's concerning. I mean, it, you see situations where you have foreign investment in the United States um, that is either next to uh, military bases, so the purchase, for example, of large farm areas next to U.S. military bases, um, or you see, uh, for example, the strategic investment in U.S. territories or ter- territories of our allies in ways that could uh, hamper our ability to respond, for example, militarily um, in future conflicts. In particular, I'm thinking of China here. Um, my co-author, uh, Zach Cooper, who's at CSIS, has this great example he likes to use of how China um, uh, invested in a huge casino resort complex uh, in Tinian in the Northern Marianas, um, which is where a, a significant U.S. base, uh, air base is. And uh, the purpose, we think, of the investment was not to draw tourists to Tinian, because Tinian has a very s- small population and there's not a, a huge tourism, tourism industry there. Rather, it was, curry, it was to curry favor with the local government so the local government would not permit the expansion of U.S. military facilities there. And so thinking through uh, what adversarial strategic investment looks like and how we need to deal with it is incredibly important. One area, I think, of particular concern in the United States on this, on this front is actually um, Chinese investment into startup companies. Uh, so the current mechanism by which the United States screens um, private uh, investment in the United States for national security concerns is called CFIUS. It's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, likely familiar to many of you listeners on the podcast. But CFIUS only applies to companies that are already created. It doesn't apply to what's considered greenfield investment, investment in new companies. And so you have large amounts of Chinese capital uh, flowing into um, Silicon Valley startup firms, many of which are um, developing technology which could very well uh, be defense applicable and high-tech applicable and and relate to things like artificial intelligence. Uh, And so thinking through how to reform uh, the CFIUS process and the underlying scope of what CFIUS looks at, I think is going to be a really important task for Congress and for this administration to ensure that, uh, that, frankly, you know, we're not in a position in four years where many of our best um, IP related to defense technology has been appropriated by either Chinese or Russian or North Korean or whomever else uh, has a defense interest in securing that technology. Super helpful. Very interesting, Eric. Um, And and the report, again, uh, elaborates on some of this. Just very quickly, so we don't forget this, and we've got a lot more to go through um, quickly, but um, there is also this boycott, divestment, sanction uh, program that uh, our colleague Jonathan Shanzer has done a lot of work on. Can you can you just explain very quickly uh, for the listeners who may not know what the BDS um, you know uh, idea or or threat looks like, how that fits into this defensive economic posture? Absolutely. So the basically what the BDS movement um, is, it started off frankly uh, against Israel, where 
um, Palestinian activists would uh, essentially attempt to get foreign companies to boycott Israel for its involvement in the West Bank, its involvement in Gaza, and its policies more generally speaking um, uh, towards the Palestinian people. Um, the fear here, the fear, the concern here is that um, non-state actors will actually use a similar type of approach uh, to uh, threaten U.S. interests and the interests of its allies by essentially saying, look, private companies, you don't want to invest in the United States because of all sorts of corporate social responsibility concerns. Um, or you don't want to invest in Israel because of corporate social responsibility concerns for Israel's, you know, uh, quote-unquote or, or alleged um, uh, uh, alleged um, activities that, they, that the Palestinians think may violate international law, for example. And so there's a real uh, fear here that, you know, if, if hostile actors in the United States can, in effect, uh, undermine our economy by, by um, disincentivizing private sector right. activity, that, you know, that, that will cost us long-term um, economic power. I think it, it, you know, there are ways that we can really address this issue. So, for example, at the Commerce Department, there's actually an office uh, that deals with anti-boycott related issues, which, frankly, it hasn't been used that much um, in the past. It's a fairly, fairly quiet office. Uh, there are ways to beef it up statutorily so they can address these issues in a more sort of thoughtful and robust way. Yeah. That's great. Um, shifting gears now to the, the ideas of positive economic power, and I think um, again, the ideas are not new necessarily in the context of understanding the importance and the, and the goodness, frankly, of uh, greater economic strength and, and um, accessibility, financial inclusion, uh, more trade, higher standards of living. Uh, but how this all fits into a kind of a broader strategic picture um, and as a complement to the things we're talking about has been far less articulated and, and certainly is a focus of this of this chapter. Can you can you tell the listeners a little bit about what what you've laid out here and what we mean by positive economic power in the context of national economic security? Yeah, absolutely. So as a as a quick aside, positive economic power um, we basically mean uh, it's the use of a nation's economic means to incentivize financial transparency um, and economic growth, particularly. In, um, in areas of, of strategic national security interest for the United States. More specifically what that means, um, we kind of break it down into two categories, which are strategic investments in social enterprises, but then also as a, as a sort of a, a corollary to that, um, ways to limit de-risking. Um, so de-risking obviously being the phenomenon where, uh, to a large extent, financial institutions have uh, believe they're unable to properly price um, risk that uh, exists in, in high-risk jurisdictions, and so as a result of that, um, have simply debanked entire classes uh, of, of individuals, uh, debanked accounts, and, and debanked jurisdictions. That is a gross oversimplification of the phenomenon. I want to be very clear about that, but in the in the 10 seconds I have to, to describe it, that's how I'm <laughs> going to go with it. That's pretty good. Yeah, um, thanks. But so the idea here is that you know, de-risking as a phenomenon um, actually increases uh, many risks um, to U.S. national security. So if, for example, Somalia is totally is, is total lacks access totally to uh, the Western financial system, it can be more difficult um, for the United States, for example, to understand exactly what flows are going on there, what types of transactions are happening there, where the illicit activity and illicit finance activity is going on there. In addition to that, 
there's also a major humanitarian component to it. I mean, one of the core elements of, um, of an effective international financial system uh, is financial inclusion and making sure that we can provide financial services um, to, uh, to folks who need it. And that actually, that financial inclusion underpins a lot of social stability, particularly in, in high-risk jurisdictions. It underpins also significant economic growth. And so there's a real focus in this chapter of using strategic investments, for example, um, to help facilitate financial growth, facilitate a robust financial system, and to think through how that investment can actually be used to strengthen U.S. national security interests. And so in this way, it's complementary to a lot of the more coercive uh, tools that the United States has at its disposal, for example, to stamp out terrorism financing, to stamp out sanctions evasion, um, to stamp out other types of illicit financial activity. But it's no less key. It's no less important. Right. And we've dealt with this. And when I was at the Treasury, Eric, we, we talked a lot about uh, the charitable backfill issue, right, which is a, is, a, is a dimension of this. You've got two sides of the coin, uh, financial exclusion and then financial inclusion. When you're talking about uh, charities that are shut down because uh, they are supporting terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, um, it doesn't mean that there isn't a need for charitable activities uh, in the so same zones where those charities may have been operating. And uh, I think the U.S. government had a hard time uh, with both the strategies and the mechanisms, even though, you know, we were trying and trying very hard to do that charitable backfill. And so part of, uh, of I think, what we're laying out here is what are, the, what are the two sides of the coin here? If you're going to engage in aggressive uh, strategies of financial exclusion, which are important and, and often necessary to national security, what are the other elements of financial inclusion across the board that are important? Strategic investments, uh, a great example. Uh, another angle, and we don't get into the report much into this, but certainly it's part of the public discourse, is kind of our strategic use of, of oil and, and the fact that we're now an oil-producing country. And that reshapes the way we can think about relationships, vulnerabilities, and opportunities, uh, you know, how we counteract Russian influence, for example, in Europe, uh, given that we now potentially are an oil exporter. What does that mean for our allies in NATO, for example? So there's a lot of different ways about thinking about positive economic power in a geopolitical context that, that implicates security. Um, Eric, why don't we jump to this, this, the next chapter on uh, systemic uh, challenges and opportunities, uh, which, as we said at the start and, and you highlighted, uh, sometimes are ignored. Um, you know, the, the flashy headline grabbing issues like sanctions and Iran and cyber, um, even, you know, questions about what China's doing in the South China Sea or with its investments, you know, tend to get more headlines. The systemic issues that really undergird uh, the system that is about transparency, accountability, traceability, which allows a lot of these tools to actually operate. Uh, and for the for the U.S. to be predominant in the space, um, that that gets ignored. Um, and so, talk to talk to the listeners, talk to me about what is in this chapter that's interesting to you and important for them to take away. Yeah. So I think that I think that's absolutely right. Your initial description of it. I mean, the example I like to use is if you're an international bank, right, and OFAC comes out with a sanctions designation as part of a huge push it has to, let's say, sanction um, 
know, Kazakhstan. There are no no plans to sanction Kazakhstan, <laughs> but we'll just go with right, it. hypothetically. Hypothetically, right? And you don't have the underlying processes in place for uh, customer diligence, for KYC, for know your customer, that are mandated by uh, the international financial system, by the Financial Action Task Force, that are mandated by uh, many of the, the local regulators, then you're not going to have any idea whether or not you're doing business on behalf of or for this sanctioned party. Right. And so this international financial infrastructure is absolutely critical to sort of the more, I, I am hesitant to use the word sexy sanctions actions and things like that. But, <laughs> that's what but they are. That's what they are, exactly. <laughs> um, and so what we do in this section of the report is we lay out some of the challenges that we've seen in the past couple of years, uh, major instances, for example, where we think the, um, the AML-CFT system uh, uh, may have not caught everything we wanted to catch, while fully recognizing that 15 years ago, the, the progress that's happened over the past 15 years has been just unbelievable and a real testament to everybody's work in this field. Um, and then we suggest a few additional steps that can be taken, certainly in the short term, mm -hmm. to increase the transparency and accountability of that system. And so, for example, it's mostly U.S. focused in terms of what we recommend, but we recommend you know, things like um, uh, extending um, the AML-CFT preventive measures to investment advisors. Um, or requiring uh, legislation for uh, beneficial ownership in the company formation process. Small steps, um, which frankly would do a lot to uh, increase our visibility into exactly who owns the companies um, that we're doing business with and who, uh, who owns the funds that are being traded through, for example, broker-dealers back and forth. Yeah, and, and in many ways, you're right that conceptually it sort of makes sense, it sort of seems like a small step, but would be a major muscle movement in terms of kind of regulatory focus um, and transparency in a way that um, would have some strategic impact. I think another way to think about this, especially for those listeners interested in Iran and, and where our policies are headed there, um, if you think about one of the challenges and frankly one of the ways that Iran has, has been so isolated uh, with sanctions and financial pressure is the fact that the Revolutionary Guard controls upwards of 40 percent of, of the Iranian economy. Um, how do they do that? They do that openly in some cases. In other cases, they do that through shell companies and, and, uh, and cutouts. Um, and the very idea that uh, pushing for beneficial ownership uh, legislation or corporate formation uh, legislation, that is to say, we need to know who actually owns uh, the entities that we're doing business with. We need to know the natural person that is behind the transaction. That actually enables you to then isolate the rogue actors who may be behind the transactions. Is the IRGC behind this particular wire transfer? Is uh, North Korea uh, and elements of their establishment behind shipments that are of concern? Um, is this a terrorist supporter and financier that appears on an OFAC list that you wouldn't otherwise know or, or be able to discover? So to your point, Eric, this is these are really almost super obvious things that should be happening, uh, but are major muscle movements and have yet to happen uh, and would have really interesting strategic impact uh, on some of these issues that, that do get more of the headlines. Yeah. I, and let me just be clear, I don't mean that they're easy steps for anybody no, no, to I, take. You weren't you know, saying Definitely that. not, but they're definitely major lifts. But I think they would have very significant impact in our ability to sort of, as you just 
nicely laid out, target uh, many of the entities engaged in illicit activity like the IRGC, for example. Right. One other issue, Eric, and, and we've talked a lot about this, and, and this is certainly um, the subject of much discussion among uh, policy experts and certainly in the international um, development community, is the role of anti-corruption efforts um, to not only um, help with the economic development in uh, countries that suffer from high degrees of, of corruption and kleptocracy, uh, but also as a systemic focus and even a strategic driver for uh, some of these national economic security strategies. Just the idea that corruption itself is a key theme and driver uh, around the world. And we've certainly seen lots of cases, the 1MDB case, the FIFA case, uh, you know, a lot of the corporate cases where uh, corruption takes on uh, multiple dimensions and has strategic impact. But, uh, you know, reflect a little bit on what corruption means uh, in the context of both this chapter and the report. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, corruption is one of the sort of the key pillars. Anti-bribery corruption, ABC, is one of sort of the key, what we classify as threats to the integrity of the national financial system. And so multiple um, Element, multiple recommendations within this chapter in particular are aimed directly at focusing on things like politically exposed persons who are more likely to be uh, more likely to to have engaged in corruption based on their governmental position. Um, but more broadly, I think the report touches on corruption here, but it also touches on it um, in section two, which is the more coercive tools. Because in the past couple of years, you've certainly seen an increase in U.S. interest in using those coercive tools to stamp out corruption. So not only do you have um, uh, Department of Justice lawsuits and uh, you know, a, an increase in um, enforcement actions related to the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but you even have the, the development of sanctions that are specifically focused on issues related to corruption. So for example, you have the Global Manitsky Act. You have the Venezuela sanctions program, which has a prong that's uh, an executive order with a prong that's specified to target Venezuelan leadership, government leadership engaged in corruption. There are proposals uh, in Congress um, that have sort of been uh, circulating through which uh, would target um, senior leaders in the uh, in Iran and the IRGC for corruption-related activity. And so I think what you're beginning to see really is corruption as this national security threat, not simply as something which U.S. businesses have to deal with when they go abroad or is a, you know, simply a threat to the international financial system. So I think it's a much sort of holistic realization of the threat this poses. Yeah, and I think that it's, there's more to come in that space uh, with regulation enforcement, but strategically, to your point, where corruption uh, is a key issue. And we've obviously seen this in national debates, whether it's in Brazil or, or Turkey uh, or even China, where these issues take on uh, a political life of their own. Uh, and of course, uh, no, no uh, country is immune from this. So obviously questions in Western economies as well. Um, Eric, let's, let's sort of uh, turn to kind of uh, where we head from here. And part of it is um, structurally, how should um, the U.S. government, how should the international community be thinking about these issues, organizing itself? We've done the thinking, but in the organization. And part of the reason for this report was to time it for a new administration um, uh, and a new Congress, uh, beginning to think about these strategic issues. So as you look forward, um, what are some of the things in the report that you think are important for uh, 
not just the government in the U.S., but other governments around the world to, to be considering and to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And so and this is a topic you and I have discussed, certainly. I think one of the most important uh, elements is to actually have, in the United States anyway, a national economic security strategy. Um, so everyone knows, or most people know, that the United States every couple of years, I think it's every four years mandated, puts out um, a national security strategy which lays out the, the threats to the U.S. and how it's going to address them. And as part of that national security strategy, you do see elements of economic statecraft included. Um, the most recent one has a number of references to the importance of sanctions and a number of references to the importance of the strength, uh, the maintaining the strength of the U.S. economy. But it doesn't have uh, this kind of um, complementary construct where you think through positive U.S. economic power, our coercive tools, our defensive tools, our systemic tools, and then how we get there. And I think as a, a sort of a um, as the first move to best understand how all of these elements fit together, we would need we do need a national economic security strategy um, as a way to plan both what we think the threats are and what the responses are. This is a, this report that I'm holding up right now is in fact a very, very <laughs> It's a very bad, nice report. It's very, 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 very bad first cut at something like that, you know, from, <laughs> from experts who are outside who are not seeing everything all the time and frankly, you know, have, have a lot of experience but may not have as much experience as I wouldn't say currently. bad. I think it's a pretty good I, effort. I it's appreciate pretty that. Good Thank you. <laughs> um, but I think that th- that is sort of the first step. And the second step would be um, adjusting structures within the U.S. government accordingly. Now, we've seen all sorts of proposals. The report actually makes a couple itself for how to do that. Um, but broadly speaking, I think you would want some type of organization, hopefully at the White House, that would, because of the, the, the intergovernmental in, uh, coordination ability of the White House, that's able to bring in different perspectives. Because if you think about all the elements that we've laid out here, positive economic power, coercive power, defensive power, doesn't sit with one agency. Treasury and state have sanctions authority. OPIC uh, is important, for example, in strategic investment. The State Department is incredibly important for a lot of our defensive uh, power and our um, our coordination with allies. And USAID so, for USAID, development Department purposes. of Defense. So everybody has a little bit of a dog in this fight, and no one has sort of the huge jurisdictional breadth that would that, that's needed to, uh, to, to encompass all of it. Yeah. And so having some type of entity that would be able to bring this together, preferably at the White House, given the authority the White House has over all the agencies, I think would be most useful. Yeah. I think that's great, Eric. I, I also think... Um, and this is partly captured by in the last chapter, but it's also, again, one of these conceptual themes that is woven throughout. Um, the international community has to think more creatively around alliance structures uh, to deal with all of these issues. And and by that I mean not that we you know uh, put up defensive shields around economies, but um, that we think you know creatively around economic redundancy. Uh, we, we're certainly talking about that in the context of uh, critical infrastructure protection and, and security. What does that redundancy look like uh, when there are choke points in the international economic or financial system, choke points in supply chain security? Um, you know, what, what does that redundancy look like? And can alliance structures actually build that into their trade deals or into their security arrangements? Should NATO, for example, be thinking about this? Should the five eyes, the, the five intelligence services that work closely together, the U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K., and New Zealand, should they, should they be thinking about a common CFIUS process, a defensive posture? So um, there's, there's a lot to be done here. And I think 
as well, and this is intended to spur a lot of discussion and discourse uh, among listeners and those who would read this and those who are interested in the space, um, you know, what are some doctrines and strategies that need to emerge in, in this context? What does deterrence look like when you're talking about national economic security? Um, what what does what does power even mean um, when you're talking about both uh, tools of statecraft and and warfare, even potentially? And and how does this all evolve when much more of the economic dependencies are growing online? Um, and so. I, I think this is, you know, uh, this is virgin territory in terms of establishing strategies, doctrines, uh, and new creative thinking as to how to do this. Um, and Eric, a huge kudo to you in pulling this all together, being the lead author of a report that I think, and I think we all hope, becomes the lodestar uh, around which a lot of this discourse and academic inquiry and policy work will follow. Um, I should note, and, and Eric, maybe to close out, you can comment on this. Uh, we did host a conference uh, on February 6, uh, 2017, uh, at the St. Regis Hotel in Washington to uh, lay out the report, to celebrate its publication, but also to bring in some experts to talk about dimensions of these issues. And you were part of, of that. I was as well. And I think we, uh, it, we had a really good discussion, great turnout. Uh, and a lot of enthusiasm for these issues. Any any final thoughts or reflections on both that day and, and the rollout of this report? Yeah, so uh, the one, I think, most pertinent point uh, on the rollout at the event um, was we had a couple members of the administration uh, who participated um, uh, the, the, current Trump the current Trump administration. Yeah. The panel. And I was very heartened by their discussion of the importance of thinking through, not just, I think, the way they phrased it, was the urgent but the important, and in particular in the context of national economic uh, security. Because in large part, many of these issues are very urgent that we're dealing with. But what this report really suggests is that we need to think more medium and long term about how we're going to structure the U.S. government in order to address many of these issues. And that takes you know, the ability to put aside the inbox for a day or more than a day yeah. uh, and think through sort of what these important medium and long-term trends are and how to address them. And so I was very heartened by the fact that I, I took their comments to suggest that they also um, are partners in that endeavor. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. And and, and uh, for those who are interested, you can find certainly um, on the internet, if you look up set the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance um, and look up the date February 6, tw uh, 2017, you will find uh, clips, if not the entire uh, video of that conference, we we commend it to you because it was a great day. Um, with that, I think I think we're done. Eric, thank you again. Uh, the report for those listening again is securing American interests: a new era of economic power, available online. Um, and uh, we're really proud of the work. And Eric, congratulations to you and the whole team for putting this together. And thank you, Juan, for having me on. And uh, it was a great conversation. Awesome. That's FinCast for this time. We look forward to the next session. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Have a great day.